Welcome to Design 30. My name is Jason Bilyeu, and in this podcast, I provide design strategies and tools to improve creativity, innovation, and overall design confidence. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Design 30. Today, we will be going through my nine core takeaways from the book, The Evolution of Useful Things by Henry Petrosky. I've done an episode on this, or at least one of these takeaways previously, talking about how form doesn't typically follow function. And as you will see, that will make it into this list of top nine takeaways from the book. But overall, this book talks about uh, different everyday things such as forks and knives and things as simple as paper clips. Uh, he talks about needles and buttons on your shirts and how soda cans are even made. So it's really all of these different things that we as humans tend to take for granted, especially humans in the 21st century in 2023. These are things that are so commonplace you you rarely even give them a second thought of how were they developed? How are they designed? What, what are the design principles that they represent? What were the challenges that the inventors went through to actually get these products to where they're at today? And so this author does a really good job of going through that for a few of just these common but simple products that they're so simple and they're so common, they often fade into the background of our everyday lives. So it's a pretty fun book to read. I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in engineering, anyone who's interested in design. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a pretty fun read. I think you'll really enjoy it. Again, it's called The Evolution of Useful Things by Henry Petrosky. He's also written a few other books that I think are potentially a bit more well-known. One is called To Engineer as Human, and the other one is called The Pencil. And the one called The Pencil is actually this massive book, actually. I have it on my shelf. I haven't got to that one yet. This is the first book by him that I've read. Uh, but I'm excited to dive into those. After reading this one, he's a really good writer, does a really good job of taking these things that can be somewhat boring concepts at times, just, you know, how much can you actually write about a paperclip and make it interesting, but he actually does a surprisingly good job. It's really impressive. Um, so today we're going to be diving into, again, like I said, a few core takeaways from this book. Before we get into that, as always, follow Design30 on all of the different social medias, uh, not on Facebook, but we're on uh, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Substack, and even now on Medium, which I'm pretty new to, uh, but I've been posting uh, a lot of my, well, the last two Substacks also on Medium, just trying to get a feel for that platform as well. And I've seen a lot of cool articles on there, so I think it's a good place to uh, start posting some of this content. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, one of the best ways is to become a subscriber to the Substack. You can become a subscriber to the podcast and whatever podcast app you use. So you can subscribe on uh, YouTube 
or you can just follow on social media and share my posts, share the episodes, anything like that. Those are all great ways to help support the podcast. Okay, enough of that. I'm ready to dive into this. Got my decaf coffee here, which I'm slightly regretting because it's it's hot coffee and this room is also pretty warm as the sun is setting and shining right through the window. And I tried turning on the fan while I was recording, but it ends up causing a lot of that annoying background buzzing sound. So I'm, you know, I'm toughing it out. Uh, We all have our difficulties with our jobs and what we do. So I think I'll survive. But if I start to fade towards the end of the, the podcast, it's probably just because I'm running out of energy and close to death from sitting in a sauna, basically. But no, in all seriousness, I think I'll be fine. Uh, This coffee tastes good, but it is a little too warm. But that's enough on that. Let's dive into this episode. So the first takeaway from this book is a theme that uh, it kind of is encapsulated by this book as a whole, I would say. And it's, we take for granted the rich history of design behind the things we use every day. These are things such as kitchen utensils and paper clips, uh, the needles that are used to fix clothing, which perhaps we don't do as much now, but were very important, especially around the turn of the century. And for a lot of people, when clothes weren't so inexpensive and weren't a dime a dozen, uh, needles and buttons and these things were actually really important inventions uh, for humanity in general. And we also take for granted things like soda cans. You know, we, we drink it, smash it, throw it away, maybe recycle it. Don't really ever think about it again. But there's so much history behind each and every one of these things. That's pretty fascinating. And like I was saying at the beginning of the episode, this is what the author does a really good job of diving into just, okay, we have something as simple as a fork or a spoon or a knife. And he looks through all of these different designs over the years and what they potentially were designed for. Because initially, knives uh, were what people used to eat food. Uh, As far as we can tell historically, a lot of the time people would just use two knives and that was it. That was all of the utensils they really needed. So they would use one to, for example, hold the meat down, another one to cut through it, and then just stab it and eat it. And then over time, they started developing all these other different tools, such as the fork. And now instead of having to hold your meat down with another knife, you can stab it with your fork and then cut in between the tines. And so there's these little incremental innovations that then also got caught up in culture and then other ways of eating were considered proper. And then that also led to a whole lot of other, of other things. If you were someone who was wealthy, maybe you'd have multiple forks for different kinds of foods, these kind of things. And even something like the fork is pretty fascinating to think about because you, you kind of have this set of competing requirements with a fork. For example, if you're trying to get a pickle out of a jar with your fork, there's basically two requirements. You need to be able to stab the pickle and get it out of the jar. So you need to, it needs to be enough friction that it actually holds on. Once you stab the pickle, it kind of grabs onto the fork and you can pull it out of the tiny opening at the top of the jar, right? And then when you get it onto your plate, you need to be able to get it off the fork. And sometimes you're trying to do this with one hand so that if your hands aren't super clean, you aren't touching the pickle right before you eat it. And so now you need the pickle to actually come off. So you don't want too much friction. You don't want the fork to stick on too well. 
So there's kind of these two competing requirements that are integral to how the fork functions. So in one case, you need it to stab and hold to get it out of the jar, and then you need it to let go somehow so you can actually get it off onto your plate. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can design the tines of a fork to accomplish one or the other. And as you can see with our current forks or the current design of forks, we kind of came to this happy medium where the pickle's gonna stick on there pretty well, but at the same time, there's not like little hooks or anything like that that are gonna keep it stuck on the fork. You can still, once you put a little bit of force on it, you can pop it off or pop the pickle right off your fork. But it's something as simple as that you don't really think twice about when you're actually eating, but then you start looking at how these forks are designed and then how there's all these different forks that have been designed over the last 200 years. It's, it's really pretty fascinating. So again, this one of my overarching takeaways from this book is there's, we take so much for granted of, uh, of this just rich history of design behind all of these different things we use. And even paper clips have like a, a pretty fascinating history, which I'll get into a little bit more towards the end of this episode. My second takeaway is form doesn't follow function, which I talked about this in a different episode. In reality, form follows the failure of previous designs to function as we want them to function. So essentially, form is actually following the correction of failure after failure. So when a product or a tool doesn't function the way we want it to, that's often what leads to insights for inventors. That's what leads to insights for designers, or perhaps it just frustrates you so much. You find an inventor, you find a designer to uh, attack this issue that you've been dealing with. So there is uh, an aspect of the form being being something that follows the function of the product. Obviously, uh, the form of a cup has to have some way to hold a liquid, right? That's So the form of it does follow the function. But if you had a cup that was, uh, for example, made of steel, and you were using that to drink coffee or something really hot, uh, that's probably, uh, you know, the form of it works pretty well for the function, but you keep burning yourself every time you grab it. So that's an example of how this design is failing. And that's gonna lead to some innovations. That's gonna lead to new ideas where people decide, okay, well, instead of making this thing out of metal or out of steel where it burns my hand every time, why don't we make it out of a ceramic or out of something that actually insulates you from that heat so that doesn't burn you every time you grab it. So more often than not, a lot of the designs you see isn't necessarily form that's following function, it's more form that's following failure to function as we want it to function. So that's a lot of the time what's driving innovation. And the author Henry Petrosky talks about this a lot for all of these different products that he goes through of how there's so many different failures that have really informed the way these products function more so than just the form has to be that way for it to function because it there's a lot of different forms that you could have for something to function uh, the paperclip for example there's a lot of different ways you could design a paperclip to hold pieces of paper together 
So really where your design is coming from is all the different ways that your paper clip fails. What are all the ways that it doesn't hold your, your paper together well? What are ways that it pokes holes in your paper? Or perhaps, perhaps it's just too expensive. So now your form is actually following the failure of your product to be affordable. So that was one, one key theme that is very constant through this book. And I think is a really interesting lens to look at products through. And this leads nicely into my third takeaway from this book, which is the evolution of a product is driven by what it lacks. And this can be either what it lacks in reality or what it's perceived to have lacking. But the next design change on that product is usually a result of it lacking something. It's it's something that it's not performing well. And this is obviously very much connected with the previous takeaway that the form follows its failure to function in the same way the evolution of the product if you look at how a product you know changes from its initial conception to maybe where it's at 100 years later you could probably describe the evolution best by talking about what it lacks you look at that first product and you're like what did it not do well how is it not performing some function what is it lacking as a product And you're going to be able to use that uh, as a good heuristic probably to understand how this product has evolved over time. My fourth takeaway is that success is found in the study of failures. So, and this can be the failures of yourself or of other people. But if you want to succeed at something, you usually have to study how either other people have failed to address that issue or perhaps you need to study why you're failing to address that issue. So your success and the success of other people is very often closely associated with the failures of, uh, of that you've made in the past, the failures of those people in the past. And this comes up a lot in this book. He talks a lot about all of these different inventions that failed in some way and then some other inventor, some other genius engineer, designer, or sometimes just a, a every day. They weren't even necessarily genius. They're just an everyday person who had a, a design mindset. And they would look at how someone's design or product was failing, and they would come up with a better way to do that. They would look at maybe how expensive it was, and they would come up with a better way to manufacture it to reduce the cost. Or they would look at how it kept you know, for example, people kept pricking their fingers on needles when they're sewing. So at some point, somebody came up with a thimble. So they kept studying this failure of this product to serve its function. Well, it served its function, but it didn't serve its function well enough. It wasn't performing its function as good as it could have. It lacked something. And so at some point, someone with a a creative mindset looked at and said, well, if I just design something to cover up the finger that they keep poking and bleeding all over uh, the clothing that they're sewing, then that's going to solve a problem. That's going to meet this, this need. It's going to, it's a, it's going to create a success from how this product tends to fail in real life. So a lot of your successes you will actually get to, or you will have by studying how you failed in the past or by studying how other people have failed in the past. My fifth takeaway from this book is inventors are optimists because they believe that they can they can actually improve the world around them. So a lot of the times inventors or designers, people, they might come off a bit pessimistic because they often po- point out 
how something fails, why it doesn't work that well, what's wrong with it, how it could be improved. And that can often come off negatively, but people who actually go to that next step and who invent something to solve that problem, there's an inherent optimism in that. They believe that there's a better way this thing could be done. They believe that it can be improved and that it could potentially improve the lives of the people around them and through that actually improve the world around them. So inventors really are optimists at their core, even though a lot of the times they're going to be critical of designs, they will uh, come off negatively, uh, perhaps bashing how certain things work, trying to uh, always point out how things could be better. But at their core, someone who actually invents something new and puts that out into the world, they are an optimist. They believe that there is a better way for the world to exist, a better way for that product to exist in the world, and that that's going to help the actual users of that product. My sixth takeaway from this book is wants and desires drive invention and innovation more than need. And this was actually a really interesting point that the author made in this book that there's often a need has actually been met or at least the bare minimum of something has been met. So you don't need a new design or new invention to specifically meet that need, but people still want something better. They want something more or they just have different desires. They desire their silverware to to look better, perhaps. They want it to make it look like they are potentially wealthier than they actually are, to make them look like they're in a different uh, income class, a different class of society. Uh, perhaps people want something, for example, uh, to be less expensive so they can save money on that. I mean, it could be the case that they don't need it to be less expensive. They can technically afford it. They can get what they what they need to survive, but they want it to be less expensive so they can spend their money in different ways. So a lot of de- new designs, a lot of inventions actually come from wants and desires a lot more than they actually come from a true need. And I think this is somewhere that language can get a little bit confusing because in design, we talk a lot about how you need to meet the user's need. And we talk about having a need statement, what what needs to be done. And this isn't necessarily actually a need. It's not a necessity. It's not something that this person or this user absolutely has to have. It really is, if you dissect it, more just their wants and desires. So when you say you have your need statement, it's often really maybe more accurately described as what's the want uh, statement? What's the want and desires of this person? So I think that was an interesting point that the author did a good job of pointing out here that it's more, it's not so often that you're meeting the actual needs of these person, the things that are crucial to them uh, surviving. Sometimes you are, sometimes that is, uh, that's a big part of it, but it's more likely than not, especially nowadays, when a lot of your core needs have already been met, it's a lot of the time wants and desires that are actually driving invention and driving new innovation. Okay, on to number seven. You invent by asking how something can be done easier, cheaper, simpler, lighter, quicker, or stronger, or something along these lines. Inventors do a really good job of looking at the world around them, looking at the way they experience the world, the way other people experience the world, and asking themselves these questions. How can this be done easier? How can I make someone's life easier with a new invention, a new product? 
a new add-on to a product, a new process for doing something? How can I make it cheaper? What's a different manufacturing method that we could use? Uh, how do we make this product simpler? Maybe there's just too many ways you could use this and it makes it confusing. So how do we simplify that so it does one thing really well? These are the types of questions that good inventors or people that come with a lot of ideas are really good at asking and they pay attention to all the things around them throughout the day, whether it's on their commute to work, at work, uh, maybe their commute to go get lunch somewhere, all of these different aspects of their life. They're looking at the tools around them. They're looking at the things around them that are frustrating, that are difficult. And they're asking themselves these questions. How can we make this uh, quicker? How can I get to my lunch spot quicker? How can I get my lunch quicker? How, how can I make uh, this plastic fork stronger so that it doesn't break every time I'm trying to eat this uh, fast food meal I got or this meal I got from the this taco bus down the down the road from work. They're paying attention to all of these different little things. My eighth takeaway from this book is something that I talk about a lot. It's actually one of the core design principles of Design 30 and it's this. Simple is hard. And I've talked about this quite a bit, but when you try to design something really simple, it's actually really, really difficult. And it often it's assumed that, oh, well, it's a simple product. Should be pretty easy to design that. Should be pretty easy to improve it. It's such a simple thing, but really it's not. And I think what the author did in this book such a good job of is, is showing this concept in the example of a paperclip. So if you look closely or think a lot about a paperclip and where it's come from, it requires a lot of things to go right for it to be a viable product. One of the first ones is material science. It needs to be made out of the right material to actually serve its function. It needs to have a little bit of springiness to it, but it still needs to be malleable enough to where you can bend it to fit uh, the amount of papers you need, uh, maybe you bend it to actually use it for some different task. I mean, paper clips are used for all sorts of things. We use them to pick locks or to uh, hold things together, to build a little chain. Uh, there's a lot of different uses. Obviously, the number one is holding paper together. But you have to have the right material to put force on the paper to create enough friction so that the papers hold together and don't slide apart. And this isn't as easy as it might sound. If you use something like copper or something like raw iron instead of stainless steel or steel in general, when you bend it to try to fit those papers in, if you're if you're trying to hold together, you know, five to ten papers, it's not going to want to spring back to its original spot. So it's not going to be putting any force on those papers. So we had to have the right material science in, a, in order to even be able to, to create something similar or anything like a paperclip. And then you have to figure out the design and the shape of it. And when you have a piece of wire, there's, you know, probably a million different ways that you could bend this thing. And there's probably of that, probably a hundred thousand of them that could hold paper together. And then of that, there's probably a thousand of them that could hold paper together decently well. But you're trying to solve all of these different problems that people have ran into. They don't want to poke holes in the paper. They want to be able to hold two sheets of paper or maybe 20 sheets of paper, either or. Uh, they want it to be easy to slide on, easy to take off. So there's all these different design and of just designs of the shape that 
do better at each of these different functions. So how do you find one shape that is able to do a pretty good job at almost all of these, cover that full spectrum? And that's something that takes a long time. There's so many different shapes of paper clips that were patented, so many different shapes that people probably tried out before they even went to the patent office, just hundreds and thousands of different designs and shapes for something as simple as a paper clip. And then finally, once you get that figured out, now you need to be able to sell this thing that it's so simple, nobody's going to pay a ton of money for it, right? No one's going to pay $100 for a single paperclip. So you have to figure out some way to actually manufacture this thing that is cost effective. So now you have to come up with a whole big piece of machinery or equipment that takes your wire and bends it exactly how you want every time, cuts it at the exact same spot, doesn't leave all these little burrs and stuff that are going to catch on your papers and rip them up when you take it on and off. So you have to actually develop that equipment and machinery as well, which is no simple task. So something as simple as a paperclip has this whole long list of difficult design choices, different design challenges, from the material science to the shape of it, and even the equipment to finally make it at a reasonable price. And so early on for the paperclip, what was actually used, which I learned in this book, is people just use pins. You would just simply fold over the corner of your paper and stick a pin through it, or you know, essentially, you know, what looks like a, a sewing needle now, but like the big long pins, uh, <clears throat> not the thumbtacks, which is kind of what I thought of first. Uh, but you just have one of those your long thin pins, and you would put that through your papers, and that's what you use to clamp them together. But then when you wanted to clamp them together multiple times and take them apart and put them back together, now all of a sudden you have all these holes in your paper and you're poking yourself on your pin. So you're getting blood on the papers. And it was a bit of a mess, actually. So you can see why people wanted to move to something different. So then one of the other ideas that people came up with, which we still use now, is these big old clamps. You clamp around the paper. But those things are made of multiple pieces. Each piece is also difficult and expensive to make. Uh, they're a bit overkill for what most people need to hold their paper together. So then you move to this product that's more similar to the paper clips we have today, but there's just all of these different variations and shapes and designs and ones that are made for holding a couple papers together, ones that are made for holding more, some that are easy to put on, some that are easy to take off. There's just tons and tons of different variations of just the shape of the paper clip. So again, something that seems simple on the surface was actually really, really difficult. And in this book, he also talks about uh, an industrial designer. I can't quite remember his name, but he talks about this industrial designer who he, when he was asked to redesign something like a tractor, something very complicated, he actually charged quite a bit less than when he was asked to redesign something like a sewing needle, which seems a little bit backwards, right? Like, oh, well, a tractor, that's difficult and complicated. seems like it would take a long time to redesign that, but something like a sewing needle, that's, that's so simple and small, you could probably do that in an afternoon. But he realized that actually redesigning a tractor is not all that hard because there's so many different things that you can change, so many things you can improve. You can, there's just so many different options to go with. So it's quite a bit easier and quite a bit faster to redesign a tractor for somebody then if someone asks you to redesign a sewing needle, like, what are you going to do? There's there's only so many directions you can go. It's got to have a pointy end. And then on the other end, you got to have some way to put thread through it. 
So you, you're very, very constrained in what you can actually do as far as improving the design. So that's a good example of how even, you know, you see examples of in the best designers, they live by this principle of simple is hard. If you ask them to redesign something very simple, they realize that's actually much, much more complicated than redesigning something that appears to be complicated, which is kind of a fun, uh, fun way to look at things and kind of backwards from how you initially would think of it. But as you think through the, the different design challenges that come along with something like a tractor versus a sewing needle, you begin to understand where this is coming from. Okay, and now on to the final takeaway from this book, number nine. Designers don't always see the problem first, but they find the solutions. So this is a, this book was a good example of how a lot of the problems that crop up through things aren't always seen first by the designer. Uh, they're often seen first by the users. They're often seen first by people who are more intimately connected with that product. Sometimes it's the designer, the inventor themselves, but a lot of times it's not. And these people are coming to the designers and the inventors and the engineers to, to solve these problems. But what the designers do, what the engineers do, what the inventors do, is they're the ones who find the solutions. They're the ones who solve these problems. They're the ones who have this optimism and believe that there is a better way to do things, that there's a way to improve the user experience with this product. There's a way to improve the people's lives around them that are having issues, are having problems with one thing or another. So a good designer isn't always marked by being the one to always see the problem, but they are marked by being the one who finds the solution to that problem. So that should be all of our goals as we are designers, engineers, or just in general people who are paid to solve problems. And that can be people in all sorts of different fields. So that's my nine takeaways from this book, The Evolution of Useful Things by Henry Petrosky. Again, I highly recommend you getting it. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes for this episode to Amazon so you can go get a copy for yourself. Um, that's all I have for this week. I hope this was something that you can chew on a little bit throughout the week. And if you have any questions or maybe things you disagree with me on, uh, first buy the book, read through it. And then after that, you can shoot me an email. Uh, maybe just shoot me a message on Instagram or Twitter, anything like that. I love to get questions. When I get good ones, I usually turn those into uh, questions on one of my bonus episodes, maybe my, my fake facts, my fake frequently asked questions. But I also love to have real frequently asked questions. So please don't hesitate to send those in. And yeah, I'm going to leave it there for today. As always, everybody, have a great week. And remember, design more, despair less. Thanks for listening.